Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. So today we are so excited to have Agent Melissa Edwards join us. Melissa knows so many things that writers need to know. She not only is a fantastic agent, but also comes from a law background, and she is creating a brand new company to help out writers. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me here. So you're not only an agent, but you're also a lawyer. What are some areas that cross over and some areas that are totally separate? Well, I think all agents don't have to be lawyers and all <laughs> definitely all lawyers don't have to be agents, but the ability to read and understand a contract and to, and to negotiate well are skills that are important in both careers. Well, there are multiple types of lawyers, but for transactional lawyers, that is the the pivotal skill. And a lot of the differences come in fee structure and objectivity and the way that a, a lawyer will really represent a client's best interests really without regard for the deal necessarily, because that's not the lawyer's utmost thought process for the deal. They're really thinking about their client's best interests, whereas an agent, of course, is really representing their client's best interests, but also is, is trying to support and create a book and is working as a conduit between a publisher and an author to make the publication process a lot simpler. So the end goal is probably the same for both attorney and agent, but maybe the tools and the thought processes throughout the entire trajectory of the process can be different. I love what you said about fee structure because I have lawyer friends who are like, wait a second, you only get paid if the thing sells? (laughs) What are you doing? And I think that's so interesting how we do so much of the same work, but we do think about that part totally differently, even though, yeah, we're absolutely looking for a contract that is going to help out the writer long term. I think it's also interesting how lawyers can look at the same contract. And if they don't have a publishing background, there's a lot that they will miss. It's a lot that they don't understand because they don't have experience with the lexicon publishing. I think that's where literary agents really have their experience. They understand the specific nitty gritty elements of publishing. And so a publishing contract involves a lot of specialized terminology that a regular attorney is not going to understand. And also an agent is looking to facilitate the deal, whereas an attorney would get paid regardless if the deal is made or not, because they're billing on an hourly rate. So what are some things that a lawyer who isn't in publishing might miss in a contract? I think more so than missing, I think a lawyer who has no publishing experience might look at some boilerplate phrases and boilerplate terms in a publishing contract and try and negotiate them when in fact they're not changing. Like something like the ebook royalty. 
There's the clause that an ebook royalty could change if if the whole mindset of the entire publishing community changes or if the, the base rate for the publishing community changes. But otherwise, the the royalty rate for ebooks is the same pretty much in every contract, unless for some crazy reason an author has so much bargaining power that they they can get a better royalty rate. So for a a non-publishing attorney to try and negotiate that rate in a normal publishing contract. It just wouldn't be worth anyone's time because it's not changing. Melissa, I, I'm, I'm, I'm being quiet, you guys, because I'm listening to every word. <laughs> um, Melissa, you feel like a rare unicorn to me. <laughs> like I, I, I'm listening. I'm like, oh my gosh, as a writer, I've never even thought about, you know, having a lawyer and, um, an agent together, <laughs> like that, that singular brain. I, I'm, I'm just so impressed with kind of what you can offer. So tell us, like, what are you most excited about with this new venture? Oh, thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say. I've never thought of myself as a unicorn, but now I would like <laughs> to be remembered as only a unicorn forever. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It is <laughs> Uh, I'm most excited specifically about Emily Consulting, which is the new contract consultation business that I've opened. I'm, I'm most excited for the possibility that no author will ever have to sign a contract that hasn't had at least some professional eyeball on it before they sign it. So not every author wants a literary agent. Not every author can find the right agent. And that is one of the truths of this business that is neither good nor bad. It just is. And while that author who's signing maybe a publishing deal with a small publisher that they found themselves, maybe they can go to their local real estate lawyer that they use to sell their house. And they could say, here, read this for me. And maybe that lawyer would say X, Y, and Z looks a little funny, but this isn't my ballywick. I don't really do this type of law. So I'll give you my best judgment, but I can't tell you whether or not this is a a decent contract versus that, that client coming to me and I could read that contract in a pretty short period of time and charge them a really reasonable fee. And they can be confident that they're not signing something truly horrendous and giving away rights that they didn't have to give in the first place. You know, we've all heard those stories and I, I just, this is so valuable. And, you know, for the people out there that haven't heard the stories, you know, stories about, well, I signed it and I didn't realize that when I did that, I gave away all my rights to X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, and it's, it's so easy in this business as an outsider to be just kind of floating in the abyss. And so I, I think this is going to do really well. I'm so excited. Yay, Melissa. Thanks. Thanks, guys. I hope so. I think there's a need and hopefully the authors will be able to find me. Well, there is because I think a lot of opportunities are opening up that weren't there before. And part of that is that a lot of people will be putting together their own package of, you know, here's the person who does the editing. Here's the person who does the contract. Here's the person who does the cover. And with all of that, like we still need safety for authors, even as things change. Like that's one thing that will always stay the same is that we always need a good contract no matter what. So I am happy to know that fewer authors will be signing terrible contracts for no reason uh, in the future. 
So Melissa, tell us, what are some things authors often ask about contracts? Which part of the contract do authors find the most confusing? Well, the first thing that authors are surprised about after they make a deal or after their agent makes a deal, they are generally shocked by how long the contract takes to come from the publisher. And I know that has nothing to do with the substance of the contract itself, but that is always a conversation that has to be had with the author. Like, oh, you're excited? Well, you're not going to see a contract maybe for several months. And of course, there are exceptions and Um, some contracts departments at certain publishers are really fast, but generally it takes a while. And so there's a lot of stewing and a lot of anxiety, but trust us, it's normal. My favorite contract negotiation email I've ever received was when I sent a huge list of notes and she had literally copy pasted. I assume copy pasted. I don't think she'd write it out. This is not acceptable. This is not acceptable. This is not acceptable. This is not acceptable. Like like a robot that was just there to deny all requests, which I thought was so funny. And I just loved that moment because it was like, okay, I'll try this another way. And, and we did eventually work it out. But I just thought it was so funny that we could start in that place and everything would end up okay. Oh, man. This, that is not <laughs> acceptable. <laughs> to make the obvious joke. I actually started laughing when I saw it because I just thought it was so funny that it was like, all right, you can play that game. Sure. (laughs) And and then and then you're like, oh, you want the final manuscript? Cool. Get your contracts person to decide some things are acceptable. Thank you. Or just like to talk about why exactly that way of asking for that thing is unacceptable so that we can figure out a compromise. Or another way to ask about something similar that has the same net effect, but is somehow acceptable. Exactly. And for the rest of you guys, like listening, do you hear how their voices change (laughs) once they get into the contract side? Like you guys, when you're talking craft, there's a lightness to your voice. When you're talking contracts, you're like, rah. (laughs) (laughs) The fine print just makes me angry, Julie. (laughs) (laughs) I see that. (laughs) tiny type man like sometimes I think they should just put us in one of those like inflatable boxing rings and give us those comically large gloves and let us just like have at it because sometimes it's just really frustrating and yeah see Lulu is frustrated too Lulu is frustrated <laughs> Lulu is always frustrated so there she goes again she's still going um so also, so what makes publishing contracts so unusual I as I mentioned earlier they have their own type of language and their own norms that if you don't know what the language means, and you don't know what the norms are, then you're going to find the contract extremely challenging to read. But something like remainders or termination clauses or what first and second serial mean or what all the subrates are or, um, or information about export prices or export royalties, these are all things that a professional will understand and be able to negotiate because they have that baseline knowledge, whereas someone who has never read a publishing contract or even an author who's never had to negotiate a publishing contract will find A, really overwhelming, and B, challenging to know where to start. Yeah, I feel like most people learn these things kind of through osmosis. Like you just see enough contracts and after a while, you know, assuming you're working with an agency that's like, hey, here's a contract. Let's go over it and like explain it. That's how it was for me. We just every time a contract came in, I'd, I'd be there. I'd learn. I'd listen. That's what I do with my interns now, um, just because it takes so long that I figure the more times they see those terms, the less scared they'll be the next time they see them. 
but yeah, there's just so much in there that, that has to sink in over time. And, and to go back to an earlier question that I only partially answered, what authors often ask about contracts, they, they tend to ask what all the words mean because they don't know them. And they tend to also ask about, about copyright and, and who owns the rights to their book. And the answer should always be, you do. You're giving the publisher the, the right to use that copyright, but you're not giving up your copyright. And that is, of course, the only time that really isn't true is if the author has written IP for a publisher or um, something where the idea wasn't theirs in the first place. But generally, in most publishing contracts, the answer is you get to keep the rights to your book. And that's why there's such a clause in the, in the contract called reserved rights. So you're giving the publisher these specific rights that they get to use exclusively or non-exclusively. And then you get to keep these other rights and potentially sell them to other people. So you have to know what you're giving up and what you're keeping. And that is all extremely specific in the contract. Melissa, do you want to explain IP for everybody? Sure. So if a lot of publishing imprints, especially in kids, they might come up with ideas for for a book or for a book series, and then they hire writers to write based on outlines that they've created, and then the publisher gets to keep the intellectual property, that's why it's called IP, to that book or that series, and they pay a fee and sometimes royalties to the writer to fulfill that original idea. I just think it's such a cool thing to do because there are so many smart writers who can write anything, but coming up with a concept and blocking it out is really hard for them. On the other hand, people in publishing are kind of the experts in it when it comes to what concept is going to do well. And especially for YA, where concept is, it's a concept-based market. I think it it's just such a cool model. It is. And it's also a great first step. So if an author might be having some challenges getting their first book published, or maybe they've been out on submission a few times with, with books they've written completely independently, they might get an IP deal, which would then have their name on it. It would be a book with their name on it out in the marketplace. And and it's not like a consumer is going to know the difference and then they can get a fan base. And then maybe their second book can be completely their own creation or their third book. And so it's a way to start having a writing career if um, if maybe the original way wasn't quite working. You know, while you're talking about that, I was just thinking, I wonder if there is data anywhere about average sales of IP books versus average sales of non-IP books. Like I would think an IP book would have a pretty good chance of doing well, right? Because everyone's already invested when it's brought on board. I guess that's true of any book. I think the publisher might have a greater likelihood of wanting to push that product because they own it. So that's a possibility. Um, also, if you look at the Alloy books, they've done incredibly well. And they're IP. so well. Yes, I think there's probably some data out there that shows that IP books have been more successful on average than non-IP books. But then the model has only been in existence for a for not quite as long a period of time. I don't know how long that this has been going on, probably around the last 10 or 15 years. So can you guys tell um, the writers out there that want to get into the IP game, like how does that, how does a writer go about that? 
Ooh, that's an interesting question. I think editors who are looking to fulfill an IP project, or I know Alloy editors are also doing the same thing, or other IP companies, they reach out to agents who might have clients that fulfill the needs that they're looking for. I'm not sure how unagented authors get involved in IP. Jessica, do you know? I don't know. Because, yeah, that's been my experience where an editor will just say, hey, do you have someone who can do this? And I will say, well, yes, I do. It's the chicken and the egg. It's always the chicken and the egg in this business. Well, it's really fun, too, to see a concept and then see what a writer will do with it. Um, I really love that, actually, because I can't always guess how all these different writers are going to take the same idea and have their own spin on it. I think it's, it's a really cool thing. Yeah, I have a lot of friends that have done it. And, and, you know, the experience has always been really positive for them, I know. So let's pivot. I want to hear about something bad. <laughs> what is the worst thing you've ever seen in a contract, Melissa? The worst thing I've ever seen is a term in a contract that forced the client to pay for international travel and an international tour out of pocket. Oh, mm. and I was like, oh man, that is terrible and also really expensive and significantly more than the advance that they're getting paid. So that's a hard pass. Oh gosh. Do you know what ended up happening? Well, this was a client of mine who I started working with. She had that contract in hand and then she came to me and wanted to work with me. So I said, you're not going to sign that contract. And the publisher actually said to me, oh, that's not what we meant. It must have been a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, my hands fell on the keyboards and that came out. I don't know. <laughs> okay. It was a mistake, but the author wouldn't have known it was a mistake and the author would have signed it. So it's a pretty significant mistake. Absolutely. I love when they do that too. And then you're like, well, if it's a mistake, it's no problem changing it, right? How does that happen? I feel like there are a lot of moments where contracts people are like, oh, that's not what we meant. Okay, let's rephrase to what you do mean. Language is really hard. I think authors definitely understand that and (laughs) words have meaning, but also words can have different meanings for different people. And that's why there is a contract law and B, so many lawsuits about contracts because one person can think something is really clear and another person can read it so incredibly differently. Even something as innocuous as a comma can change the meaning of a sentence so completely that it could go and become a lawsuit over that one comma. And a judge will have to be the one to decide this comma means this thing. So it's actually kind of funny if you think about it, because we work in a business of words and we work in a business where the the ability to craft sentences is so important. And then the contract is actually a, just a, like a long list of sentences that can either go really well or go really poorly. It's pretty uncommon. Writer, writer is suing over their contracts after they've been signed. Oh, I think it's it's pretty uncommon in publishing, but there's someone I know who recently asked me to discuss a publishing contract with him because they're just disagreeing over the termination clause. Mm. And so when enough money is on the line, anything can, can become a lawsuit. I was listening, but I was thinking about this comma. And I know in Maine, there actually was a, like a $5 million lawsuit over a comma in a contract. 
Wow. So, you know, it's not publishing, but it's kind of just opened up, you know, just how important it is for all parts of our lives, you know, that we need to really be educated in something like this, Melissa, like what you're offering is just so valuable. Like I am, I, my head is buzzing. I am, I'm really excited to see where this business goes for you. Thank you. So say an author has signed an absolutely awful contract. Well, if they've signed something, I don't necessarily think they would sue because it was an egregiously bad contract. Because when you sign a contract, you're executing it and and holding yourself to it. And breaching that contract wouldn't be enough reason to sue or wanting to breach that contract isn't necessarily a a reason enough to sue, but it's when both sides understand the contract to mean different things and, and want different outcomes that I think a lawsuit then becomes the next step. Or a lot of contracts now have mediation clauses, so you can't go to necessarily straight to a lawsuit, but you go to a mediator who will speak with both sides and settle something out of court. Sometimes it's an arbitration clause and sometimes it's a mediation clause. And that saves a lot of people a lot of money. So I have to ask, when you were done with law school and done being a lawyer and switched to publishing, were you like, yes, this is so much better? (laughs) Uh, Yes. And when I graduated from law school, I graduated in 2011. So it was the great legal recession of 2011. And it was extremely challenging to find a job. And I had a job in litigation when I graduated. And I was never going to be a natural born litigator, partially because I love deal making. And I love when people are happy or at least reasonably satisfied, happy, maybe a too strong a word, but reasonably satisfied and comfortable with an outcome. And the, the point of litigation is everyone's unhappy and trying to essentially shove a pen down someone's throat. <laughs> they're so miserable with what happened that they're willing to spend thousands of dollars in legal fees and take years out of their lives because something has gone awry so, <laughs> so terribly. And that does not speak to my personality at all. So litigation and me were never going to mix. So when I left litigation and got into publishing, I was just so happy that everyone was working towards a common goal and no one was trying to murder one another. <laughs> Lack of murder. Check. <laughs> Except when we wanted in our thrillers. Right. Yes, we definitely want the murder there. <laughs> Melissa, tell us what you do for fun. What do I do for fun? Well, I take kettlebell classes. I think I've probably mentioned that with yes. you before. Yes, I am impressed. I'm afraid I would accidentally throw a kettlebell and it would hurt someone. It has happened. I have not hurt someone, but I have thrown the kettlebell and it was unpleasant. I sat down on the floor and cried. Oh. <laughs> but only once, or actually twice. Uh, <laughs> but and neither time that I hurt someone... But, um, but it was not great, but that is my, my stress reliever. It's the only way I keep myself reasonably calm so I can read manuscripts and have wonderful lunches and talk to people in a really joyful way. That is the way I get rid of my stress. I've also been doing prompted journaling as a, as another one of my pastimes. Where do you get the prompts? Actually, I, I'm friends with an editor and we're personal friends. And every other day, one of us sends each other a prompt. Wow. 
We've been doing this for around seven months at this point. So every day, one of us sends a prompt and those are the prompts we do for the day. Well, that sounds like a book. (laughs) Wait, what? That sounds like a book, like right there. So all of a sudden you're agent, lawyer, entrepreneur, writer. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Uh, Maybe one day, that'd be great. I love the idea of your friend coming up with prompts for you because then that's both accountability and some creativity right there because they know you. And her prompts are always very different than mine. I think mine tend to be sort of memorial prompts, like think of an experience when, and her prompts are more hypothetical, like design a perfect X, Y, Z. So it's really fun to see the different way we come to the same goal of writing a prompt for the day. I like that. And you both do each prompt? We both do every prompt and we don't talk about our answers because that's really personal, but we just every day check in with a prompt of the day. That's so lovely. Could you give our listeners a prompt? I could give you the prompt for today. Yeah. I'll go to my messages and let you know what it is. I want to know. Please. The prompt for today is how does other people's advice play a role in your life? That's the perfect way to end this because you've given us so much advice. (laughs) (laughs) Something to think about for a five-minute writing exercise. If you're really interested in tapping into your own feelings. Also, I kind of want everyone to tell us that answer. I want to know what role advice plays in everyone's life. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Yeah, I actually really want to know. So head on over to manuscriptacademy.com slash Facebook. And from there, you can join our Facebook group and lots of other lovely supportive writers and talk about this all important topic. Thank you so much, Melissa. It is always a pleasure. I am so excited for you, Melissa. This is the the best. You're going to be such a great business owner and just huge help to the community. I'm so glad you're doing this. Thank you so much. And if people want to find me, for contract consultation, they can always email me at melissa at melissaedwardsesq.com. Well, thank you so much for having me here. This was so fun. Uh, I will talk to both of you soon. Bye, Melissa. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.